You are listening to a Hillbilly Horror Stories classic episode. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Pauly, and their dog Ninja. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 82 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. My name is Jerry and I'm joined by my wife Tracy. Hey guys, what's going on? We are excited to be back with you because, first of all, we love you. Yeah, it feels like forever since we've actually done a podcast. I don't know why. Yeah, it's been like seven days. I know, but it really seems like it's been longer. And... We have a cool interview, one of my favorites to throw on the end, Grant Wilson. You know him from Ghost Hunters. Yeah. And he's my all-time favorite uh, paranormal investigator. Uh, no offense to Amy Bruni, you're right there at a really cl- like a 1A. Amy's like I'm a serious, 1A. Like, I feel like you say that about all these great people. Well, they keep getting greater and greater. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> but we've got uh, some cool stuff to cover with you guys tonight. Uh, we've got two stories that... I went out of my way to try to find two stories, literally, that I couldn't hardly find anywhere. No, good for you, So I've listened to, I went back because I've got a way of checking what shows have been on podcasts and other Mm -hmm. podcasts and stuff like that, and uh, these shows have not been covered. One of the ones we were going to do was only covered in one podcast, and it was four years ago. Oh, wow. But it's some cool stories. It's going to be a little different tonight. Uh, I posted on our Facebook page that it was, these stories are going to be more about the atrocities that took place that caused the hauntings uh-huh. more than the actual hauntings themselves. Oh, wow. Well, but I, I think I think you're going to enjoy both of these stories. So first of all, we want to thank uh, all of our military and civil servants all around the world, no matter what country you, are, you represent. Yeah, we love you guys. Praying for y'all so hard. We're going to zip through the new iTunes reviews because we had a bunch of those this week. C. Savoy 74, Yogi Vaz, Ida June 79, EVP Medium, Connor M, 1995, America's Navy. I'm sure you're probably uh, in the military or a veteran, so thank you for your service. Thank you. Little Lena Lynn, uh, probably my favorite iTunes name of all time, Creature from Your Mom's Lagoon. (laughs) Cameron L., round out the list for this week. Thank you guys so much for your reviews. Helps us more than you realize. Thank you. We really do appreciate and love you guys so much. Speaking of helping us out, our... uh, New Patreon supporter for this week, Katie uh, Stayancho. I hope I didn't butcher that too bad. Thank you, Katie. You're amazing. Thank Ka- you. Katie's awesome. She also bought tickets to the Waverly Tour. We've added a second tour, which I think we covered last week. There is now a 930 tour, April 28th, which is a Saturday, that Tracy and I will be on. There were 50 tickets available. Uh, we told Waverly, hey, we're going to be using these for our tour. So they agreed to let us use this uh, second tour that night for our group as well, since the first one sold out. And of the 50, we've already sold over 20 tickets to that one. Well, good. I cannot wait to meet all of you guys. This is going to be the funnest night ever. And remember, if you bought tickets to Waverly, it, it's a separate ticket to get into the um 
live event that we're doing earlier that day with uh, Pleasing Terrors, ourselves, and uh, History Goes Bump. So yes. if you bought your Waverly tickets and you're coming to town, there's only like 20 seats left for that live event also. Uh-huh. So go ahead so and snag those up. Yeah, Go to our Facebook page and uh, we've got it posted on there. You might have to dig, but you can go to Fright Night in the Ville on Facebook and there's the event set Very up for good. it. I am so excited to meet every one of you guys. This is going to be so fun. And hopefully you'll help me not be scared. <laughs> yeah, because we're going through it twice in a row. We get, we're doing the oh, 7.30 and the 9.30 I tour. know, I'm scared. But we wanted to do that to be able to. There was a lot of you guys that didn't get a chance to get tickets that sold out so quick. And we wanted to make sure that uh, we got a chance for get you in too. Yay, so, I'm so excited. Yep, it's going to be super fun. It amazes me at how many people are coming from all over the United States to come to this little live show and to go on a ghost tour with us. Yeah, I'm, it is amazing. And I'm very, I feel very blessed that they're coming and I just cannot wait to meet everybody. I mean, I guess it's, it's hard for me to get used to the fact that, like I said, last week we had, you know, Jackie come down from oh Wisconsin gosh, yeah. with a friend, mm-hmm. drive eight hours to spend time with us. And now we've got people, I mean, we've got Lacey from Texas who is flying in to the Brohio show that we're doing mm-hmm. up you know, the Brohio and, and Mysterious Circumstances show that we're doing in on, what is it, the April 14th. Yep. And two weeks later, flying from Texas to Louisville for this event. I know. She's I mean, a doll. We've got listeners, uh, Danielle and Julie, coming from Michigan. That's about a, a an eight, nine-hour drive. We've got uh, listeners coming from Virginia. We've got listeners coming from Dayton, Ohio, which is like a five-hour drive. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing to me that people care enough about our shows and what we do to put that kind of time and effort into it. I know, and I'm sure the other podcasters are just feeling the same way we are. That's what I was going to say. It's not just us. Oh, no. You know, when you figure in the Louisville show, I mean, it's History Goes Bump and Pleasing Terrors, Mike Brown uh denise diane Mm -hmm. these are legends in podcasting so we're very honored oh my gosh yes to do this and it's funny it's right in our own backyard waverly is right there in louisville Mm -hmm. which i'm basically in louisville almost every single day and you would think that this is probably something we came up with but mike brown from pleasing terrors this was actually his idea and he approached both of us as far as uh, our show and History Goes Bump and said, hey, would you like to do this? So all the credit actually goes to to Mike Brown and Pleasing Terrors. Yeah, very cool. Very. I'm glad that you did come up with it because it's going to be amazing. And we've actually had a lot of people ask because Mike's uh, only put uh, like one episode out since November. He's been on a little bit of a hiatus, but we've actually had some people asking. But Mike told me that he's got a new episode coming out very soon. Oh, so good. How exciting. Just taking a little break, refreshing. Sometimes you just got to do that and... So it's pretty cool. Yeah. And um, before we get on with our show, I just wanted to say that our prayers are with everybody with all this torrential downpour that we've had. The, everything is flooded. It is it's, it's so sad to see all this. I mean, houses underwater. I mean, it's just it's just uh, heartbreaking. So just know that our prayers are with everybody that's going through this. I've been through it myself. And it's not a fun ordeal. So hopefully the sun will come out and this will stop for a while. Yeah, it's uh, Kentucky is really bad right now. Louisville's really bad. There's uh, um, It's amazing the damage that's already happened. And, uh, and this is going on all over the Midwest. I know Tennessee got yeah. hit. Indiana's got they hit. They had tornadoes yesterday, I think. And I'm sure it's happening you know, at a lot of places that we don't even know about. So yeah. if you're listening and you're going through some, some flood damage, 
Uh, you know, as of right now, it's not as bad as what Houston went through during their the hurricane situation, but uh, it's getting pretty bad. So yeah. if you're listening and you're and you're struggling with these things, our thoughts and prayers are with you. So let's go ahead and jump into our first story tonight. I'm excited. I'm ready to hear about this. I like I said, both of these stories are absolutely fascinating. So I think we're going to uh, really enjoy what we got going on. Our first story tonight is actually brought to you by our new sponsor, Black Buffalo. I want to take a few minutes and talk about a new sponsor that we have, Black Buffalo. Black Buffalo, a smokeless tobacco alternative. Yes. And I say alternative because there's no tobacco leaf or stem actually in this product. So it's a lot better alternative Mm -hmm. uh, for people who dip or use smokeless tobacco. Yes, much way better than dipping for sure. So let me tell you a little bit about this product because it's fairly new, but it's a pretty awesome product and I'll tell you why. First of all, it's born in the Midwest but raised in the South. Black Buffalo is the only tobacco-free alternative dip that delivers the same experience as traditional smokeless products just without any of the tobacco stem relief like we already mentioned. The taste, the texture, the rich dark color, and yes, the nicotine so you can keep the ritual but ditch the tobacco. Black Buffalo makes tobacco-free long cut and pouches in the flavors of wintergreen, mint, and straight. Black Buffalo sells two packs, five packs, and merchandise exclusively on their website with free shipping. Head to blackbuffalo.com and use the code HILLBILLY50 and you can get 50% off your first order. That's great. I wanted to tell you while we do this because typically we wouldn't endorse a tobacco product. Right. But this is not a tobacco product whatsoever. The thing that, that I wanted to bring up about this is we're not encouraging somebody who doesn't already dip to start dipping. That's not what we're, we're doing. But what we want to do is inform people, if you already dip, this is a lot better alternative to what you are doing right now. It's a lot safer. Every ingredient in this can be found at your local grocery section of your, of your grocery store. Uh-huh. So that's what I like about it. I know we, we've talked before uh, on the show about we wouldn't endorse something that we wouldn't 100% behind. And Tracy, you know, she's in the, in the dental industry. So she can vouch some of the stuff that you see people coming in, the cancers and stuff like that, that are related to tobacco products. And that's what makes this product so good is that there is no tobacco. So you get all of the, the negatives of the tobacco are gone mm-hmm. and all the positives that you like, like the, the nicotine, which is the main thing people are wanting out of it. Yes. It's just a lot safer yes, uh, way and of doing this. It is very much safer. And I'm glad that product is out there. A lot of people you know, have a hard time kicking the habit, not smoking, not dipping and stuff like that. But as Sherry said, I do work in the dental field and I have seen some stuff that if you had seen it and I'm telling you, you would, if you, if you seen what it does to you, you would not do it. But so if you have to do it, this is a best way to go about it and still get the enjoyment out of it. Absolutely. So like I said, you know, this product, like can't stress enough, you get rid of all the negatives that you would get at a traditional. And on top of that, like right now, they've got a, a contest where you could win a thousand bucks. Just go to Black Buffalo and spread the word about their movement, and they're going to give you a chance to, to win some money. You can find the details at blackbuffalo.com. And like I said, if you use the, the code Hillbilly50, you actually get 50% off of your very first order on there. So pretty good. That's a great deal. And you know, one of the things that I really like about this company is the fact that they're actually a proud sponsor. Uh, partner of a nonprofit dedicated to helping special operations forces 
that transition out of the military into the private sector. Obviously, that's something the military is near and dear to our heart. Mm -hmm. So the fact that this company also gives back and and helps those people that it's tough when you get out of the military. Oh, my gosh. I mean, and it's, yes, it's stressful enough as it is. And it's hard to, you know, it's hard to get jobs sometimes when you get out because you're trained for, you know, maybe fixing helicopters and there's not a lot of helicopters to be fixed on the, you know, the main uh, stream or whatever the deal is. So they actually help um, by donating to the charity that actually helps some of that stuff out. And that's so we great. That's it. a great thing to do. So the other thing is uh, they sent us some samples. Mm-hmm. I've got uh, a gentleman by the name of Alan that I work with, a guy named Jason. I gave them the samples because they both dip. Yes. And we, we he opened up. He's got a name brand, obviously. We're not going to give the name of it, but the name brand he used, he opened it up. We were comparing side uh-huh. by side. And, I mean, you couldn't tell the difference oh, between the two. Well, that's great. And keep in mind, this product here with Black Buffalo, it doesn't contain any tobacco mm-hmm. whatsoever. So, so did they love it? Well, he told me that he tried all three flavors. Mm-hmm. Well, Alan tried all three flavors, and he thought that it was fantastic. He well, said, good. "He said for him, you know, this would be something he was definitely going to order because." He liked the idea that mm-hmm. it didn't have the tobacco, but he, to him, it had the same taste. Everything that he liked about it, it was there. Jason said the same thing. Jason even mentioned that he's got high blood pressure, and mm-hmm. he said regular dip. One of the first things he tastes is sodium. Oh yeah. And he said with this, he didn't he didn't get any of that. So he actually liked it better than what he was currently well, that's using. Great. So well, good. So there you go. That's a, a quick little story for Black Buffalo. Uh, go ahead and give them a try. Blackbuffalo.com. Put in uh, Hillbilly fifty to save fifty percent off your first order. The first one is actually the Purple Church. Well, I love it already because you know how I feel about purple. Well, it's a tad bit misleading. So. Uh-oh. So the Purple Church is in Spencer, Oklahoma. And what's really interesting about the Purple Church is that it's not actually purple. And we're not exactly sure that it was ever a church. Oh, well, that's misleading <laughs> then. So what we do know is the, that the for the last 20 years, basically... It's been a place where teenagers go to kind of freak each other out and and kind of play around a little bit. And uh, I guess it's kind of started to build a reputation Mm -hmm. mainly from that. In the time frame of over the last 20 years, the Purple Church has actually uh, kind of got a reputation as one of the most haunted places in Oklahoma. Oh, dude. Just about anybody who's ever visited has got exactly what they're looking for and have not left disappointed. So we mentioned that the Purple Church isn't purple, and it's possible that it's not even a church. So why is it called the Purple Church? Hell if I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. There, there, <laughs> there is all kinds of purple satanic graffiti inside and outside of this area. Did I mention that it isn't actually a building did I bring that up yet? Well, no. I mean, I've been disappointed so far. And purple's a beautiful, happy color. It's actually just a concrete foundation with steps that lead down to a cellar. Oh, that's even worse. It sits way back in the woods, and it's really hard to find. So there's all kinds of just positives going on with this place. Oh, my gosh. I'm already scared. Not only is it hard to find, but it's, well, it's hard to find just because of the location, first mm-hmm. of all, because it's kind of stuck back in the woods. But there are also some people who do not want you there. Many visitors, including members of the law enforcement and the military, have claimed to have been chased out of there by men in robes. Oh, gosh. I don't know if they're bathrobes. I don't know if they're satanic robes. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think I'd want to know. But some have been chased out with people that have had guns. Um, 
they've actually been threatened by different various means besides guns. Some witnesses claim that nails are actually thrown in the roadway to actually strand people. That's quite the whisper. I know. It's like I'm, you couldn't is, get it out. I know. This, this story is kind of <laughs> creeping me out a little bit. Uh, <laughs> some people have actually been chased down the road by uh, somebody that's in a real large truck with the headlights turned off. Now, see, I don't dig that. I think I'd rather have, well, no, I don't want to have any of that. But, man, can you imagine being chased like that? Well, I mean, that reminds me of the story that Dina told, remember, up in Pennsylvania when she was on the show, Dina yes, from Twisted Philly? Yes, I do Philly. remember that. And she talked about the place that there was the trucks that were always parked up there, and they would keep people from getting back to that, that house that had yeah. the crooked trees oh and stuff. Oh, my gosh, in it. that is the scariest thing ever. Well, let's say you do get past these guys, and you get to the actual site. What would you expect to experience there? Well, let's discuss this background of this place so we can kind of see how this legend came to be, and then it'll all make sense than what you do actually see when you get there. So you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. First and foremost, we do not know that this building was ever a church. The actual structure is no longer there, obviously, but the consensus is that it is, it's burned down. Okay. And there's people who actually have done studies on this to try to figure this out. Uh, some say it was actually a house. Others say that it was a church. I couldn't find any proof either way, and I didn't see anything in any of the material I looked at where somebody said this is what the property was, which I find extremely odd because how do you have – somebody has to know what the hell this was. Somebody either owned it or they had family who owned it, but it should be listed somewhere in deeds or something of that nature because you're going to find – Do you think some people died in it? I don't know. I don't know. I, um, I mean, I don't have any record that they have. So nobody's found a deed, nothing? No, it's very little info on the structure, which is baffling to me. Uh, there's no record of even when it was built. So it's it's pretty much a mystery. Now, some research has, has helped narrow down some possibilities, though. For example, Spencer, the town, was actually founded in 1903. Concrete didn't start being used until 1907, and that was primarily in like municipal buildings, you know, town mm-hmm. halls, stuff like that. Smaller residential stuff and farms and stuff didn't start using it until 1915. So we can assume that it was built after 1915. There's no electrical conduit or um, rebarb. Uh, For support, you mean? Yeah, like, like the it, rebarb wire? Yeah, like the stuff they put in the, the concrete yeah. to, to make it, you know. Yeah extra strong there's none of that in the concrete uh the foundation's only one and a half feet thick so it was probably built before 1940 just based on that more than likely it was in the 20s and the 30s 1920s and 30s so it's really not that old to Mm -hmm. not be able to figure out who owns it yeah the lack of the structure indicates that the house was most likely intentionally burned down due to the completeness of what's missing Somebody put some real effort into this. And it was probably because the structure was insecure. So okay. I don't know how they would know that, but I guess right. they, they figured that they burned it down just to keep anybody from getting hurt in it. Mm-hmm. The trees actually that are growing around the uh, structure would have been consumed by the fire. And they can tell that by the size of the trees that are growing down now, as opposed to what the size of the rest of the woods around it are. Okay. So they yeah. can tell these trees are newer trees. Right. So they had to be consumed by the fire, so, which is one of the reasons they think that's what it was. Mm-hmm. But why was this place, um, 
why does it get such a bad rap? I guess we should say. What makes it so evil? Well, the Purple Church has a long history of alleged satanic cult rituals. And this may have actually started with a 16-year-old by the name of Sean Sellers. Sean Sellers was a Satanist who killed his parents and a convenience store clerk in 1986. And you probably will remember the story as we get into it. Uh-huh. He killed his mom. Uh, her name was Vonda Belafato, and his stepdad, Lee Belafato, when they were asleep in their Oklahoma City house. He wore only underwear because he wanted to limit the blood splatter on himself. So this was very well thought out. Yeah. He shot his stepfather first. His mom woke up from the from the blast of the gun, and then he then shot her in the face. <gasps> oh, gosh darn. He tried to make it look like that an intruder had actually committed the murders because he rearranged the bodies and stuff just to make it look like somebody had broke in. Well, he later actually confessed to the killing of a Circle K employee, which is like a little convenience store. Mm-hmm. And the reason he did this was because he was pissed off because the clerk wouldn't sell him beer. Oh, my gosh. There's other ways to get beer, son. Honestly. You would think if you've got a gun, instead of just killing him because he wouldn't sell it to you, you just hold the gun and on him and say, let your... me have some beer. Seriously. So at the trial, he claimed that he was a practicing Satanist. And at the time of the murders, that he was possessed by the demon Ezraet, and that he caused him to com- commit the murders. That's a bunch of crap. Don't practice Satanism, boys and girls. It only no, leads, don't. It only leads to bad things. So he claimed to have read the Satanic Bible by Antoine, Antoine LaVey hundreds of times between the ages of 15 and 16 years old, and that's when he committed the, the crimes. He said, I got very involved in Satanism. I truly thought it was an honest way to live, and the rituals of it would enable me to control my life. I controlled him right into prison. Yeah, how'd that work out for you there, buddy? His attorney argued that he was addicted uh, to the game Dungeons and Dragons, which this is the second or third time we've heard people try to mm-hmm. say that the game Dungeons and Dragons kind of uh, fits in with Satanism in Why some way. Why can't y'all get, like... Pac-Man. Yeah, but Parcheesi. Yeah, <laughs> something you can just eat yourself to death if you want to. I think oh, that's... What <laughs> the hell? Well, Pac-Man's all... Wah, 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 so, that. Yeah, you know I don't saying? think he... Okay. Well, so Sellers... <laughs> Sellers said that the game playing of Dungeons & Dragons had, had no part in his crimes whatsoever. Uh, so what ended up happening is the jury found him guilty, and he was executed in 1999. Little fun fact for you. He is the only person un- that committed a crime under the age of 17 to be executed since the um, death penalty was brought back into the United States in 1975. So there wasn't that much time in be- between, was there? When I mean, when did he kill his parents? 86. 13 years. Well, I mean, that's still, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, in it's today's, like, today's like age, years, you know. Years. What's the point? Today's age, most people on death row die of old age. Yeah, seriously. So. Well, they got to him pretty quick, I guess, then. So Sellers claims to have uh, been a, become a Christian while he was in jail, in prison. And uh, he appeared on a bunch of TV shows, including Oprah Winfrey Show. And a really um, popular segment, you can find this on YouTube, with the Geraldo Show that he did about Satanism. And I remember actually seeing this back in the day. But for the record, his step-siblings and a lot of the prison officials thought he was full of crap and there's no possible way that he yeah you don't you know, go from one extreme to the other like that 
So that's, I mean, I guess you can, but they think that they don't think he was sincere. They thought it was just a, a matter of him yeah, trying, trying to, to do something to try to be, get yeah. out of the death penalty. Yeah. So what does this case have to do with the Purple Church? First of all, I'm not going to be pressured. I'll tell you when I get to it. Oh, God. Okay. I'm just saying. I just, that know. came out of left field. <laughs> I'm like, I know I didn't even say anything yet. <laughs> with that being said, I guess now's a good time. So okay. I'll go ahead and tell you about it. It's believed that Sean Sellers was instrumental in first using this property as for satanic rituals. Mm-hmm. So this is where, supposedly, he went to start when he was doing, when he's really into a Satanism, he did the very first satanic rituals at this place. And then I guess it picked up from that point and became a place. So he had like followers? I don't know that he had followers, but people know that he was using it for this. Oh, okay. So now that we've covered the history, what will you actually experience when you get there? Well, there's rumors and then there's facts. So let's discuss some of the rumors. One rumor is that a full moon on Saturdays Cult members actually meet at the Purple Church and engage in a virgin sacrifice. No way. So that's probably harder and harder to find these that's days. Say, how, how you how you know that they're a virgin? How can you prove that? Kids, for the most part. Oh, like young kids? Well, you would think because the next one is there's similar stories involving mothers that sacrifice newborn babies there. <gasps> That's horrible. Well, I would think that that would be kind of, you would have all these missing babies or something. Yeah, um, that's horrible. Somewhere down the line, if that's the case. But So those are the rumors. Uh, There's little evidence that actually proves any kind of human sacrifices have ever been done here. Animal sacrifices are a completely different story, though. Animal sacrifices are routinely conducted here at the Purple Church. Not cool. Dead, mutilized animals have been found hanging from the trees and on makeshift altars. Uh, They've also been found in the path that leads up to the Purple Church. One witness actually found a bathtub full of animal body parts and sleeping bags in front of it. Oh, my gosh. To be one of the most haunted places, there's really not a lot of paranormal occurrences reported, though, here. It's like I said, it's more Mm -hmm. the stuff that's went on here. Now, witnesses have reported some strange floating lights that are out in the woods, disembodied voices... Uh, the smell of death is obviously widely uh, reported, but that would tend to make sense if there's a lot of dead body parts and yeah. animal parts and stuff like that. Man, that's so terrible. I said dead body parts, like there's a bunch of live body parts bo- running around. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's a leg. <laughs> it's running away from me. <laughs> so <laughs> if you've actually got the guts. That, that would probably be more traumatizing, I would think. <laughs> it would be. <laughs> It's, it's a like, miracle. It's like, remember, we used to talk about like when they have those plane crashes and stuff mm-hmm. on CNN and they're out there, the wreckage and stuff, and they're out there and they're talking about, you know, uh, here's this guy over here. He's only half a body. Uh, he's obviously dead. Well, you think? <laughs> I mean, it's not like. Yeah. I mean, could you imagine he's sitting there and he's, he's like, hey, buddy, come here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I can't feel my legs. Yeah, don't look down. Oh, Lord. <laughs> That would be terrible. So if you've got the guts to actually uh, walk down the steps to the cellar, because we told you that it's a, a foundation and some yeah. steps that lead down to a cellar. If you I'm dare to do that. I'm fresh out of guts. Fresh out. So a lot of the animals there. Uh, so if you decide to go down there, 
most people say that they experience a really ominous mm -hmm. uh, feel and they don't even make it all the way down. They turn around and go back. Oh my so gosh. as soon as they get halfway down the steps, it's just the most freaky, yeah. uh, depressed feeling ever. So they just turn around. Well, that's a good thing that they're, they're able to do that. Really. Well, if you get to the cellar uh, on the floor, there actually is a pentagram drawn in there. Plus all this graffiti and everything we talked about mm -hmm. is for the most part inside there. So that's pretty much all there is on the place. But it's there's a lot of stuff tied to it. And the fact that it's a mystery that nobody can even tell you when the place was built, whether yeah, it was a house, whether it was bizarre. a church. And people have the tendency to just still go there and mutilate and kill animals. Oh, and, my gosh. Sickos. And I think that what I find most interesting about the story is there's a bunch of YouTube videos out there. And you can actually see there, there's people who patrol that road literally with like a shotgun. And they don't want anybody back there. It's just a place back in the woods. Now, at one point in time... Um, the company who owns it, it's owned by an actual company that mm -hmm. owns the land now. They had said back in like 2003 or something like that, that everything like the cellar and everything had been filled in. Oh, so you couldn't, so why, you couldn't go yeah, to it. Yeah, I was going to say, why when they do that? But there's people who's been to it recently, so that obviously wasn't true. But I don't know why there would be people. I don't know. The people that are like patrolling it are like locals and stuff. They're not, they don't have anything to do with the company that owns it. So... Yeah, but why? I mean, I know they fill it in, but why can't they just get rid of the whole thing? I don't know. I don't know why they wouldn't do that. Yeah. Because there's nothing there that's going to make them any money or anything like that. But yeah. For some reason, people don't want anybody back there, but they also aren't doing anything to get rid of it. So oh, yeah. it's, it's almost like it's being protected for something. For some yeah. reason. That's really crazy. You know, somebody suggested something earlier today. And it was something that you and I have talked about. I've got mixed emotions on it, but what is your thoughts on if we went back and covered a few of the stories the way the way we do it now that me and Ricky had done back in the early days? Because we only did, like, for example, Bobby Mackey's, uh -huh. which is a pretty huge story, which today's show would probably be an hour long if we did it. Yeah, I would. I would love to do that myself. I feel like I missed out a lot on that. So I guess my mixed emotions is I I like the show, the format that yeah. it is today, but and I, and I kind of don't want to feel like I'm erasing what the original history was. But at the same time, yeah, that's awesome. that's true. There was some really good stories that we could probably do a lot more thoroughly. Uh, it's nothing against Ricky, obviously, but we were only doing like twenty minute shows back right, then, twenty right. to thirty minute shows. And, you know, some of the bigger shows we actually covered back then are the bigger topics. We did Waverly. We did uh, uh, the Myrtle's Plantation. We did uh, mm -hmm. uh, Bobby Mackey's, obviously. Those are three huge stories that we could probably do over and with a completely different style. Yeah. So I guess, I guess I'd be interested in what the listeners think about if we should do that. Maybe we should could put up a poll in the group. And say, hey, of these three or four shows, which one would you like to do? Maybe we just do one of them. Yeah, I think that would be an awesome thing to do. And also, I mean, with Waverly coming up, that might be, you know, something. Yeah, I mean, more that we could say about that since we've got so many people coming. Yeah, with the Waverly tour, I probably wouldn't mind maybe doing that for that live event. Oh, yeah, that's true. And then that way they can they could hear about it mm -hmm. and then go straight from there to the tour. Oh, yeah, and kind of know what to look idea. for. So, I mean, that's kind of, that's probably what we'll do. Uh, but whatever we do for that Saturday that the people there get to hear, we'll mm -hmm. end up doing for that week's podcast as well. Yeah, I think that sounds amazing. 
Um, again, this whatever you guys think, if you all are interested in that. If not, that's fine as well. But just give us your thoughts about it. We also, April 14th, we have another live event in Ohio. Mm-hmm. It is uh, just outside of Cincinnati. What's that little town? Milford. Mm-hmm. It's at the Roosters in Milford. It's at 7.30, and it's going to be um, Brohio podcast, mm-hmm. our boys from up there. And then uh, Justin Rimmel from Mysterious Circumstances is going to be there, and then obviously we're going to be there. Uh, tickets are still available, though somebody just told us today that they tried to get tickets, and it said that, that it's closed, you can't buy tickets or something. There's still about 25 tickets available, and I'll have to call the place and find out why it's saying that. But there are tickets still available, and uh, as soon as I get whatever figured out the problem is there, I'll post a link to it so you'll be able to get tickets. Yeah, that sounds great. We have one more sponsor for tonight. I want to go ahead and uh, uh, tell you a little bit about a Casper mattress. All right, so we've got to take a couple of minutes here to talk about our new Casper mattress. I'm going to be honest with you. I've heard the commercials on a bunch of different podcasts. Didn't really realize how great they were until we got ours. It literally is like one of the best mattresses I've ever slept on. I just, I wish, I can't believe we've had, you know, all these years of sleep and never had one of these things. Well, I can attest to that because I can't tell you how many mornings I've woken up and my back is just killing me. Is it woken up or awakened? I believe it's awakened. So, either way. Either way, <laughs> my back does not hurt anymore. Thank you, Lord. I mean, the average person spends a third of their life actually sleeping, so you should be comfortable, right? Yes, absolutely. So we deserve that. And the Casper products, they're actually cleverly designed to mimic human curves, so they provide you with the support of comfort for all kinds of different types of bodies. Well, good. They're good for short, squatty bodies, I guess. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> and what I like about it, because you know I'm hot all the time. Yes. So the and their breathable design actually helps you sleep cool and regulate your body temperature throughout the night. And so, you know what that helps with, ladies and gentlemen? Your electric bill. Because the mattress, it keeps you cool. And you don't have to run the air conditioner as much. And that's absolutely true. Because like I said, that's, that definitely helps with, with me. Because we've already seen that already in the short time that we've had it. But don't take our word for it. I mean, you've got 20,000 reviews with an average of 4.8 stars uh, across Casper, Amazon, Google. Um, all those different places. That's awesome. So Casper's actually becoming the internet's favorite mattress. And all right. I can definitely see why. I can see that. So they got affordable prices because Casper cuts out the middleman and sells it directly to you. And it just shows up at your house when you order it. Delivered right to your door in a small, how did you do that, size box. Remember, yes. yeah, you just, it's just a box and you open it up and then the mattress just is... kind of just like rolls out. <laughs> Really cool. So we absolutely love it, and we know you'll love it too, and you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-a-trial. Very good. You can't go wrong with that. Yeah, I mean, how you, if you can get your money back. I Seriously, mean, yeah, but you won't want to. No. So, and we're actually going to give you the opportunity to save a little money off of their current prices. So what we want you to do is just go to casper.com slash hillbilly. That's us. That is us. Pick out the mattress you want, and then to check out, you're going to put in the promo code of Hillbilly. Terms and conditions apply. But next thing you know, you're going to have a nice, wonderful new mattress delivered straight to your door. I'm excited for you guys. You're going to love it. Our second story tonight is on the Concho Indian Boarding School. And I know that doesn't sound exactly politically correct, but we're going to be telling you a story from a time when there was no political correctness. Okay. Uh, Just like the other story... The haunting of the school mm-hmm. is important, but it's not um, the main focus of this story is going to be everything leading up to the haunting of the school to try to give you a better picture of why the school is haunted. So before we get into the actual school itself, of course, I want to tell you that Concho Indian Boarding School is actually in Concho, Oklahoma. 
Okay. Uh, so we'll get into a little more than that later. But before we get into the actual hunting of the school, I want to cover some background of this time in America as it concerns Native Americans. Okay. Um, I know a lot of you out there listening know that, you know, this country was founded basically by settlers from uh, Europe, England, that came over here and then they pretty much took the land away from the Native Americans. Eventually they ended up on reservations um, and there's still reservations today. Oh, wow. That's cool. So that's kind of just, but I want to discuss some more specifics and what I'm going to start off talking about, since this is an Oklahoma based show tonight is we're going to talk about uh, some things that happened in Oklahoma concerning Native Americans that can kind of give you an idea of what they went through. Now, in the 1920s, it was actually a, a really good time in, in Oklahoma to become rich off of oil because it was really the booming industry back then. And it made a lot of people millionaires overnight, and including some uh, American Indians at the time. Unfortunately, lots of Native Americans were murdered also because of the oil. Aww. So in Osage County, between 1921 and 1925, at least 60 Osage Indians were killed and their land went to white owners. Some of them were actually shot in their head while they were still in, sitting in their cars. Uh, there were several of them that were involved in explosions in their house that was mysterious, to say the least. And then some of them were just brutally beaten by white men who would do anything they could to get rich. Terrible. They should be ashamed of themselves. I'm sure they're all dead now, so they have no need to be ashamed of themselves. Well, just that, saying. I know. It's no secret that the mistreatment of the American Indians or the Native Americans in today's world started way before this incident ever. So let's go back to the 1870s. Boarding schools for Native Americans were started with an idea from uh, Richard Henry Platt. He introduced Indian boarding schools uh, back around the early 1870s. Mm-hmm. How did the boarding schools work? Well, the white men would actually remove children from the reservations from their parents and take them to these schools that were ran by the white. And the whole purpose was them to be immersed in white culture and learn white values. That was the whole purpose of doing this. The goal was to actually obliterate their Indianness and teach them how to get along in the new world. Believe it or not, a lot of Native Americans were actually in favor of this. You got to kind of understand why, though. After two centuries of conflict in the 1870s brought the last of the great Indian wars with the defeat of the Sioux Indians, the buffalo herds had all been pretty much wiped out. Mm-hmm. Uh, a life of hunting and gathering was no longer possible like it used to be for the, for the uh, American Indians. Most Indians were forced onto reservations and given allotments of land. Uh, that they could farm, but they had no tools and no skills. So pretty much it was worthless to them. Yeah. You know, so if you can't go out and hunt and gather like you used to, you're stuck on this farm where you can't do anything. Yeah, they didn't have a choice. Yeah, what are you going to do? So, in you know, you got a growing white community that was uh, near most of these reservations, and they saw the Native Americans as as basically threats. You know, they feared them. And uh, the saying back in that day was the only good Indian was a dead Indian. So, you know, it's it's not something that was going to be easy, an easy life for them. Uh, Indians actually faced the fact that genocide was a, a real possibility. So Pratt came up with the, the idea for these boarding schools, and it seemed like the best option for survival of the Native Americans at the time. Even Geronimo, which everybody's heard of Geronimo, 
he spoke at, at one of these schools in 1880, and he said, you're here to study, learn the ways of the white man, and do it well. Hmm, interesting. So by 1902, there were 25 federally funded boarding schools in 15 different states and over 16,000 students enrolled. Wow. While most of the Indian parents were willing to actually send their kids to the boarding schools, some resisted, as you would think. Uh, most caved in, though, when they were threatened with imprisonment or loss of their government rations. Because oh. uh, basically, they were a lot of them were living off of, off of uh, basically welfare at the time. Yeah. So there was a lot of heart-wrenching goodbyes, you could imagine, oh with gosh, kids being imagine. ripped from their parents. Yeah. And, and this is all they've known, and now you're just being taken away, and, and you're so, scared. And so what did the parents do? They were just left to fend by themselves, yep. basically. Yeah, but they were getting government support, so yeah. it's just like, you know, it is what it is. Uh, another saying back then was, kill the savage, save the man. So the whole purpose, like we said, was to get rid of all of their Indian culture. They wanted to change them from Indians to white people as best that they could as far as to how they acted. And, you know, once they actually arrived at these schools, sometimes hundreds of miles away from where they were, their culture, cultural and identity was immediately stripped from them. Oh, gosh. You know, their their long hair was cut. They weren't allowed to wear any of their native clothes, their, you know, headdresses mm-hmm. or something. Uh, they weren't given, they were given uniforms. And new names because they said that their old names were too hard to pronounce. So basically, they were given white names. And they were forbidden to speak their native language, even to each other. Oh, no, see, I, I, that's not cool. Well, if the, if the point was to wipe all of their culture out. Well, I mean, then, I, I mean, know, but come on now. So those who did actually uh, decide to start speaking their own language, they got caught. They were either threatened with beatings or confinement. As screwed up as that seems today, and it's important to remember, however warped it is, that the people who ran these schools were, for the most part, reformers who had the children's best interest at heart. I mean, back then, they thought they were doing Mm -hmm. the best thing for these kids to give them a fighting chance. And uh, even though these punishments were available... It's important to know that a lot of the leaders of the school and the administrators rarely used them. Most of the teachers and administrators were sensitive to the fact that the kids were starting over and, and they were working hard to try to get acclimated to their new culture. And they kind of tried to make the transition as easy as possible. Well, I mean, they should. That's, they're just kids. They don't understand, you know, that's all they're used to. In, in fact, though, most of the children who stayed for the full time, came out with positive views of their experience. They were thankful to learn a new language, uh, important coping skills, and a range of useful useful vocational skills that they didn't Mm -hmm. have back then. Well, I mean, I think that's great, except for the punishment part, if you spoke your you know, your language. Right, but most of them didn't really enforce it as well. I hope not, because that's just not, you know. Now, keep in mind, the problems actually started when they got back home to the reservations, because... They were trained to be farmers and factory workers. Guess what they didn't have on the reservations? Yeah, none. They didn't have any factories. Of course not. And there really wasn't any farms anymore because the the factories, first of all, they were hundreds of miles away in the big cities. And as far as farmland, all the land that was plowable um, was pretty much given to 
leased out oh, how to white farmers. Yeah, how confusing is that for those kids? Right. So, so like I said, they had some land that was pretty much unusable, so they couldn't do anything with that. And then the ones that was usable, they were white. White farmers were using it. I mean, they were paying them for it. But they had leased it out, so there still wasn't a need for their services. So what they end up doing? Well, most of the people on the reservation lived off the government, like we were telling you about before. Mm-hmm. But some, some found some other options, but most of them actually slipped right back into their native ways. Did they really? Yep. Uh, by 1909, the boarding school system was under uh, criticism because now they were starting to say, is this the right thing? Is this working? You know, after 30 mm-hmm. years, let's evaluate it. Um some called it a complete failure. Washington, D.C. wanted to defund it, and they decided to kind of improvise it instead. And what happened it was the large schools that were hundreds of miles away turned into smaller schools that were a lot closer to the reservations. Mm-hmm. Now, because of the very poor roads and difficulties of actually reaching the schools from some parts of far away on the reservation, many of them actually stayed boarding schools because it was easier instead of coming back and forth every day to just stay there. In fact, enrollment actually peaked in these schools in ni- in the 1970s. Oh, my god! So you wouldn't even think that these schools would still exist in the 1970s, but they did. Well, I just don't understand how these poor kids was able to cope with that. I mean, go learn this to be a better person just to send you back to be nothing again. Not nothing, but yeah, I know not have any opportunities or anything like that. I guess, I guess their whole thing was don't live on a reservation. You know, go go out into the world. We're giving you the tools to go out yeah. in the world and do something. I guess, you know, I kind of look at it, and this is, isn't really apples to apples, but, you know, it's kind of like we have projects right now. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there's projects and ghettos and stuff like that. If you take people that live in the projects and the ghettos and you give them schooling and you give them some trades mm-hmm. to where – you know, you're like, hey, we're going to give you some tools to where you can go out and, and have a, a better fighting chance than most of the people in the ghetto do. You would hope that when they got out, mm-hmm. they would go do bigger, better things instead of falling right back into yeah. the, the same old, same old. Right. I mean, um, I mean, we surely want everybody to succeed in life. That's for right. sure. So that leads us to our story of the Concho Boarding School. It originally started in 1888 in the city of Darlington. In 1932, a new school was actually built at the present location, and in 1969, that school was replaced with the structure that's there today. It was defunded in 1981 and shut down. So this thing ran all the way just until, Mm -hmm. you know. Not that long ago. Yeah, yeah. 1981, so really not that long. Rumor has it that the school actually uh, not burnt down, but it had a fire, and at some point, a number of teachers and students were killed there. Oh my gosh. But there's no real evidence to support that. And the school what looks like mean? it's in, well, there's nothing to show that there was a fire there. That's a rumor, but there's no, no proof that a fire actually took place. Well, I mean, then with the house there proof that all those people died? There's no proof. That's what I just uh, said. Well, I thought you meant about the fire. Well, no. Well, if there's no proof of the fire, there's no proof that uh, anybody died. Well, I hope to gosh that didn't happen. It's said that ghosts of children uh, haunt the hallways of the Concho Boarding School. The school is actually a complex of buildings that sits on the fringes of the Cheyenne-Arapaho Reservation in central Oklahoma. And as Indian boarding schools go, it's actually pretty modern. Because like I said, it wasn't built until like 1969. Paranormal investigations have captured EVPs of disembodied voices. Uh, The air gets extremely chilly when you're in there, even on very hot days. Mm -hmm. Doors slam, objects come flying out of nowhere. 
Now, it seems odd for a school that was only 12 years old when it closed to be haunted. But maybe the students at the Concho School had a tougher transition than students at some of the other schools. The old school, keep in mind, was on the same property, and mm-hmm. that was due from all the way back from the 30s. Oh. So there could any kind of atrocities that might have happened in that school is yeah. still right there on the same property, even of though course. the building here was it a lot newer. It on over. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so some students that were actually ripped away from their families uh, committed suicide. Maybe their tortured spirits are the ones who haunt the hallways Oh, my gosh. Now. That's so sad. We do know that some horrible abuse actually did happen there. Uh, an Amnesty International investigation of Indian boarding schools showed that in the 1970s and 80s, there was widespread sexual abuse that took place in a lot of these different schools. Not necessarily that one, but, you know, in a lot of the schools. Mm-hmm. The one case uh, that kind of sticks out, there was a teacher at a Bureau of Indian Affairs ran school on the Hopi Reservation. He raped and molested as many as 142 boys before being caught. In recent years, the Sioux Nation filed a $25 billion lawsuit from the uh, trauma that was actually caused from the abuse from the government-ran boarding schools back during all this time. That is a lot. That's a lot of money? No, that's a lot of boys. Oh, I know it. I mean, my gosh, what a sickhead. It's not funny. No. But I find it ironic that the... The group of Indians that brought forth the lawsuit was the Sioux Indians. Oh, uh, I'm well, just saying. I, I know. I get the situation that. is not funny, but no, not at all. Ironic. But that's just so terrible. I mean, Jesus. Mark Williams, who's the CEO, CEO of uh, Native Boy Productions, he's a paranormal investigator, but he's also does documentaries and stuff. He mm-hmm. actually did a documentary on here, but he's also doing a documentary on. The incidents we were talking about earlier with the 60 different Osage Indians that were killed in the 20s. And that's why I brought that story up, because he's actually doing uh, a nice little documentary Mm -hmm. on that to tell you a little bit about details on it. So uh, people get a chance, they can check that out when it comes out. But the, oh, and the name of that, by the way, I got one case name. The name of that documentary is called The Reign of Terror, R-E-I-G-H-N. Okay. So if you get a chance, check that out. But Williams is, is... a Choctaw Nation member, and he did an investigation into the Contra boarding, boarding school. And the very first night of the investigation, they used their cell phones, digital cameras, and recorders to record a whole bunch of stuff. Well, they didn't pick anything up initially, but when they went back and started watching it, they noticed several different EVPs of voices that they hadn't heard while they were walking around. One of the crew members actually turned the camera on them, like like doing a selfie oh, type yeah. deal. Uh-huh. And at the time they did that, you could hear very heavy breathing right in front of her. Oh. <laughs> and oh at the gosh. same time, it picked up a voice saying, come. Oh, my gosh. So kind of freaky. So here's some other accounts at the school. One woman actually said that she was sitting outside the school, and she was sitting in the car with her sister. And there was this car right across from them. And you could see that there was a man staring directly at them. But then a passing car came by, and the lights kind of shone into that car, and there was nobody in the car. What? Even though they were sitting there this whole time looking, so they immediately left, as you can imagine. Holy crap, I would have been out of there. <laughs> another incident Pedal actually- to the meadow. Yeah. Another incident happened when they had some friends that went to check out the dorms there. Mm-hmm. So uh, they- 
could hear a ball bouncing up and down, even though there was nobody else. As far as I knew, there was nobody else in there. Mm-hmm. So as they got closer to the sound, the ball actually came flying out at them. <laughs> Dodgeball. So, <laughs> <laughs> so they tried to run out, out the door, the same door that they had actually came into, but now it was closed and it wouldn't open. So it finally did open and they all ran for the car. And as they ran for the car, they could see a little girl in the walkway of the door. Oh, she just wanted to As play. they were leaving, yeah. And it looked like she had no eyeballs. E. But they felt like she could at least see them. Wow. Man, that's some creepy crap there. I know it. So one man was actually at the school with some friends, and he said it was starting to get dark, and he had to go pee real bad. Mm-hmm. They're outside, so there's, you know, he's just going to go make a spot. So he, he went to where it was kind of a private location, and before he could even get started, he said he could feel somebody watching him. And he saw a man standing in the window of the school from the inside. And he was just staring at him. And he said he was so scared that he started running, but he was still looked back. And he said as he looked back, he could see the man running too, but he was actually running through walls. Oh my gosh, was he running with his wanger out? I I don't know that he had his wanger out. I'm guessing he had time to put that back. Oh my gosh, he would have had pee all over his britches. (laughs) What a mess. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Is this the way we treat our new advertisers? Oh. You're talking about running with your wang out. I'm sure the people at, at oh, their advertisers would I'm love sorry. that. Running with his penis out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So his friends, actually, when he got back to his friends, right, they confirmed that they weren't playing any kind of tricks on him or anything, and they kind of advised him to, hey, stay with the group. Oh, my goodness. Instead of trying to That's head the off. scariest thing. Uh, they hear a lot of women crying. In the place uh-huh. and shapeshifters is, is something. That? Shapeshifters, I know you somehow when I wrote this, I knew you were going to ask me that. Shapeshifters is more of a Native American type legend. You know, you hear it in other cultures too, but it's a lot more tied to Native Americans. It's the belief that people can transform into something else. Oh, that's uh, so cool. For example, one of the stories that especially is big in this area is the deer woman. And it's supposed to be this beautiful woman, long, dark hair, and people see her and they're talking to her and they're flirting around with her. And the next thing you know, they look down and her legs are like deer legs <gasps> and stuff like that. Wow. Um, you will hear people. Um, a lot of the shape shifting has to do with dogs or big mm-hmm. cats, like more like wolves, coyotes. So it's like, somebody's a coyote or you see a coyote but in reality it's really not a coyote it's a person who's transformed into the coyote i think that's kind of cool myself you don't well i think it's kind of cool i don't know that i necessarily believe in it it's right up there with where (laughs) a unicorn so that is the story of the concho indian boarding school thoughts well i think that's a pretty amazing story and you know it's there's just so much that we never know or heard of and I just love these stories because I just learned so much. And it's just interesting. And I don't know. I, I want to say it's terrible as well. I don't know. I just really feel bad for the the Indians and their children. I don't both know. Of I these, just... Both of these stories tonight, and like I said, I kind of gave the, the disclaimer at the beginning. There wasn't a lot of paranormal activity that we talked about in yeah. most of these stories. It was more the stuff that went on there. Right. And it was horrible stories. Yeah. Not every horror story has to do with the paranormal. That, and I know that's very true. We primarily cover that, but occasionally you'll run across these things. And I found both of these stories 
completely fascinating, and I thought the history of them was worth telling. No, it, it was, and, and like I said, it's very interesting. It's just, I just feel really bad for those kids. They had to be so confused and really didn't know which way to go in life, but apparently they just went back to their, their ways, which was, hey, that's fine. Well, I mean, I understand back in the 1870s, you know, the the Native Americans back then, I mean, they were all speaking their own language, right. and they were all wearing the same type of clothes that you traditionally think with and, uh, American and stuff. So I know that then they went to these boarding schools and they completely stripped them from all that. I guess my question is, in the 60s and 70s, what was the situation? Because, I mean, and this is just ignorance on my part, but on the reservations in the 60s and the 70s, was it the same way? Were they all were still wearing the regular clothes and were they all speaking, you know, their their native language and all that stuff? So was the purpose of, of these boarding schools in the 60s and 70s and early 80s the same as what they were in the 1870s? I don't know. I mean, I, I, mean, I don't see the need. I mean, you're not trying to strip somebody of their culture in the 70s, no. 1970s, and like you 70s were in the 1870s. Drug hate, druggies, and maybe they were smoking their peace pipes. I, I don't, don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But I just thought that was kind of odd because i'm curious what what the curriculum was in the 1970s as opposed to the 1870s yeah exactly because i I can't imagine that they're being stripped from their family and made to go to schools in later years like that so so that's probably something you know that was a waste of time so if anybody actually has any more information on that i would be interested to learn what the purpose of the schools were in later years as opposed to what they were in the 1870s so that's the story we got, the two cool stories we got, and now... I'm thirsty. Okay. Has nothing to do with the show. I know. I just need something to drink. <laughs> and I can't think of a better way to introduce Grant Wilson's interview than that, so... <laughs> <laughs> Everybody give a listen to the infamous Grant Wilson. I've been uh, very excited about doing this interview for a long time. I've actually been trying to set this thing up for probably a year in my mind, but didn't really have the uh, gall to actually ask because I didn't feel like we were worthy of his attention. I know he would tell you the exact opposite because he's one of the most modest guys out there. Grant Wilson, welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. Hey, wow, what an intro. Happy to be here, man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, it's, it's funny because, like I said, we talked a little bit off the air, but, you know, when we first started this thing up, I sent out about a million and a half tweets to different people asking to retweet. Uh, you were one of them, and, and you gave us a huge boost when you retweeted us because you've got over 200,000 Twitter followers. That was, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, well, you were on this show and that show, and that really helped stuff. And it did. It was, it was huge for us. But that was the first time that we actually had somebody give us a noticeable lift in the amount of listens we were getting from something that they did on their end. And uh, like I said, I thanked you off air for it. And I want to thank you in front of everybody else for what you think is a, a little minuscule thing to do, but what actually meant a lot to our show. So thank you, Grant. Thank you. It's so, it's so great to hear. Cause it's, you know, it's a very simple action for me to do and it has huge ripples. So I'm, you deserve it. So I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad that it all worked out. This is great. Well, let's let's go. I want to jump all over the place here as far as your career, but I want to go back all the way back 2004 when a little show you might have heard of out there called uh, Ghost Hunters actually came out on on Sci-Fi. It was new, innovative at the time. There wasn't a thousand of those type shows out. You guys set the tone, uh, you and Jason, when you came out with that show. 
Tell me a little bit about how that actually got started. I mean, tell me a little bit about how TAPS got started and how it evolved into a uh, reality show. Sure. Um, so uh, I, I had something happen when I was 15, paranormal-wise, that kind of changed my life. And, uh, you know, it was pretty intense and, and still happens to this day. But uh, that got me on the road to eventually, you know, helping people figure out what's going on in their own homes and so on and so forth. At the time that I met Jay, I was developing uh, websites. You know, I'm a kind of a graphic artist and stuff, and I, I was developing websites. And I saw his website, and it was, you know, I love you, Jay, but it wasn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> and so I offered, I called him up and offered, hey, you know, can I redo this website in exchange for putting it in my um, portfolio. And he said, yeah, come on down, we'll talk. And we got together at a coffee shop and, and talked for a while. And we didn't really talk about the website as much as we talked about um, the problems with the paranormal field. And uh, we decided very quickly to join forces. Jay had been doing this on his own for a while, obviously he had his own website. Uh, yeah, we started started TAPS and, and uh, went from there. Now, uh, it definitely wasn't cool back then. And we, we made a lot of waves in the field because we just weren't buying into the bull crap. You know, people out there selling pictures, uh, you know, paying, selling memberships so you could look at pictures of dust on the website, stuff like that. A lot of that, we weren't necessarily loved by the field, but eventually it came around. Slow and steady wins the race. Uh, but so Jay and I were helping people and all this stuff and and uh, we always had a lot of media attention, but we never sought it out. It came to us because I think we were making waves. The New York Times contacted us, and they wanted to do like a Halloween fluff piece. And we said, sure. So they set up uh, John Leland to come and go on an investigation with us. And on that investigation, the team disproved everything that was all, – all the claims. And this caught John off guard, and he was very confused. He's like, I thought you guys believe in this stuff. And we said, well, yeah, we do, and that's why we're trying to find the real stuff. And what was supposed to be a fluff piece became a very well-written article, and it went out on the wire to 140 newspapers, and then the call started coming in. Networks and, and production companies wanting us to fly to California and talk about doing a show. And uh, we, you know... We're plumbers. We can't. We couldn't do that. <laughs> we couldn't afford to do that. And no one wanted to pay to bring us out. So we we're just like, forget it. And um, at that time, it was decidedly uncool to be a paranormal investigator. You kept it very private. And, uh, you know, we, we liked the anonymity we had with it. But there was one gentleman who uh, lived, who was in New York, and he actually lived in Connecticut. And he said, come and meet me halfway. I'll buy you dinner, and we'll talk about it. And we said, hey, free steak dinner. Let's go. So we went. And... Um, the gentleman uh, basically, you know, uh, said his idea was to do a, a drama, you know, with actors and everything based on our case files. And Jay and I thought, oh, that'd be cool. We can we can start to raise some awareness of the paranormal and and keep it real, but also maintain our, our private lives. And so we went with that idea and pitched it all around New York City one day. And every single person, every single company or whatever we met said, Look, it, it has to be real or no one's going to care about it. And so all the offers came in and we're just like, no, we're not interested. We're not. I, I, I don't want to disrupt my entire family life um, for a TV show. But then that one guy who was helping us said, look, if you don't do it, someone else, the idea is out there. Someone else will do it. And how are they going to represent the field you love? And that was kind of a blow below the belt. And so he said, you know, fine, we'll do 10 episodes and then be done. And uh, well, here we are, you know. <laughs> Many years later, uh, 10 turned into 20 and 100 and 200 plus. So clearly there was a bubble 
out there that was ready to burst of people, you know, every, before the show, every time the paranormal would come up, people would be a little hesitant and then you're like, no, I do this professionally. You're not professionally, but I do this all the time. I'm a paranormal investigator. Then the bubble would pop and everybody either had an experience or knew someone who did. And there was, but we weren't really allowed to talk about it. And I think, um, I think ghost hunters really popped that bubble. And we all popped it together. I mean, Jay and I and Steve and everyone on the show, we're not sitting here thinking that we made great changes in the world. What we think is that together, us and the millions of fans who supported us in the show and the paranormal, together, popped that bubble and look at where we are now. Well, let me ask you this, because this is, this is a part of it that I've always been fascinated with. You guys had regular jobs, obviously. Uh, you've got family life. Now, this comes apart where they're going to say, okay, we're going to do a reality show. Here's what's going on. Is this something that's that's done over a long period of time or they say, hey, let's sneak in all these six, eight, ten episodes in a two-week period and cram them all together? How do you make that work and be able to get uh, as little time off from, from your day job as possible without losing a job? So um, it, it takes about two weeks to film one episode of Ghost Hunters. And when we first started, we had no idea what it was going to be like. We didn't know anything about it. The production company had their own vision of what it was going to be, and we had our integrity and our credibility and our operating procedures, and they kind of they didn't mesh all the time. And so there was this growth period, and, and, and that was tough. But as far as work goes, you know, Jay and I tried to work full-time at Roto-Rooter and do a show, and it was rough. Thank goodness for our boss at Roto-Rooter. He pulled us in because we looked like death warmed over. And he said, you guys are going to die if you keep this up. And he said, we know how much this means to you. You know, take the time you need to make the show. We'll be here for you. You know what I mean? You'll always have your job. And uh, that blew us away. And so obviously we only get paid if we work. But um, <laughs> right. but they, they, covered, they continue to cover our, cover our health benefits and that stuff. And we did jobs, but, you know, they slowly became harder to do as popularity grew. So in, in as kind of a gentleman's agreement, in exchange, we, we made sure that they were a part of the show. I was going to say that that had to benefit them as well, because, like I said, everybody who followed the show knew exactly who you worked for. Oh, it benefited them, but not always in the best way. I mean, uh, I remember one day uh, my boss pulled me in and he's saying, look, man, here's, here's some applications from people. And people would put on their application that they, they – um, investigate the paranormal <laughs> like, <laughs> no one cares here <laughs> like, that's a requirement they were, very, they were very welcoming very understanding and just I, I i'll never say a bad word about them they were fantastic i, I follow you on twitter and, and a while back it wasn't that long ago a couple months ago uh somebody had written you but it came across as the fact that they didn't wasn't aware that you even did any kind of paranormal investigating anymore. And I remember you kind of responded back something like, why does everybody think that I don't do this anymore? I know you've got a, a lot of different aspects in life that you actually cover, but you're still pretty uh, pretty much in the paranormal world. I know you're doing stuff with Amy, uh, Bernie, with her strange escapes and stuff like that. So tell us a little bit paranormal-wise what you still are doing today, and then we're going to get into some other aspects of your life. Yeah, so I, I left the rigors of TV in that schedule. It was grueling and I really felt I had met all my goals and superseded them. And it was time to get back to my family and my other endeavors. Um, that doesn't mean that I, I left the paranormal 
field. In fact, I'm in it probably more now than ever after the show. So before the show, when you would investigate, you would visit a client's home and you would spend a weekend after weekend there and, you know, help these people on and off over the course of months until you figured it out. And doing that, you're able to build a relationship with the client and with the entities that are there and make real progress. That what that doesn't happen on Ghost Hunters. What you're seeing on that is just a preliminary investigation. You know, we would go in, suss it out, debunk what we could or disprove what we could, and then hand that information off to a local team. But so so it may, it, it start, was starting to wear on me because I wasn't actually really, really helping he, people. I was just kind of getting them started. And uh, once I left Ghost Hunters, you know, I took a break, kind of got my sleep schedule on gear and everything and read a lot about the paranormal and did a lot of thinking and wrote a lot. And then, you know, now I'm, I'm, I'm able to, with a very small, tight team, including my wife, able to help people the way we used to. And, you know, it, it makes a huge difference. So I'm still investigating. I'm doing a lot of more consulting. A lot of uh, people or investigation teams or whatever email me through Facebook and ask me questions or have me look at evidence. And a lot of time I'm, I'm doing a lot more of the inhuman style hauntings, which I used to do a lot of before Ghost Hunters. I'm doing them again because people don't know how to handle them. Um, so I'm doing a lot of that. Uh, I am doing events. I do uh, center stage events. That's with an S. And I do strange escapes events with Amy. And I'm doing cons here and there. But uh, I just started a YouTube channel a few weeks ago. Um, and that's doing really, really well. And uh, the reason I started that is because over the last five years, I've been trying to help the TV world understand that it's time to step it up a notch with paranormal TV. I mean, it's the same thing over and over and over again of people running around in the dark. Now, Amy and Adam's show, Kindred Spirits, does a really good job. It brings the heart back and is client-focused, and I love it. But a lot of them are just doing the same thing. We're stuck in this rut. And I couldn't get them to see that we need to bust out of that, that the fans are ready to graduate from kindergarten to first grade. And so I had like a dozen different show ideas that I was pitching, and I kept getting the same response, and that was that these ideas are too smart. They're too smart. Like, who is that? That's a bad thing? They're too, <laughs> like, what are you saying about my fan base? Like, they're intelligent people. And so I stopped trying to pitch reality shows that were a little different and started thinking, where's smart TV? Well, TV is smartest in the scripted realm. So I started writing, you know, coming up with fictional worlds that would put the characters in situations that would expand the minds of the people watching the shows. And, uh, you know, that was that's being met with a little bit of success, but no one's really committing to it just because the TV world is in a in a state of flux right now, moving from the networks to the streaming services. Anyway, long story short, I started a YouTube channel because I was so frustrated with that process. I said, you know what? I'm just going to put the channel out there. I'm going to say what I want to say. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I'm going to have be that voice again and help bring these people up to the next level. And uh, there's no one between me and the fans. I can interact with them directly. And it's working great so far. Woo, sorry, long long answer. No, that's fine. What's what's the actual channel so everybody can tune in? Uh, well, uh, a guy named Grant Wilson wouldn't give it up, so it's the Grant Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> the Grant Wilson. All right, it's easy enough. It should be easy enough to find. Yeah, check it out. See, I mean, it's it's right now. It's it's um, you know videos where I'm kind of laying down the basics, but it's it's 
the paranormal and it's going to be more than just ghosts um, and geekiness and humor and it's it's all kind of wrapped into one and and people seem to really enjoy it. So I'm going to ask you one more paranormal question then we're going to move on. Have you ever had in on any of your investigations ever had a situation where you really were either scared or just super uncomfortable that you were out of your realm of uh, comfortability? Uh, absolutely, but it was never the paranormal. It was always the homeowner. The homeowner can make you, I mean, real people are going to hurt you more than the paranormal will, and they're a little more twisted in some ways. But yes, uh, I've been in situations where I was out of my comfort level because of the client. Um, you know, we've had clients, you know, um, kill themselves and, and things very drastic. So, um, uh, yeah, and it's tough as a paranormal investigator because. Legally, there's only so much you can do to help, um, and then you have to kind of just point them in the right direction. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I've been in paranormal situation where the activity is so crazy. I mean, I remember one where Jay and I just sat down on the steps waiting for all the stuff to move so we could get a drink of water. Um, <laughs> that stuff happens all the time, but it's not scary, or I don't ever feel like I can't deal with it. Okay, so I'm. <clears throat> I'm not going to put you on the spot with name and names or anything, but there are other shows out there, paranormal teams, where they seem to want to get into a situation where they want to antagonize spirits. What's your thought process on that approach? So there are a few different sides of this. Um, number one, a lot of the other shows don't have the same goals as Ghost Hunters. I mean, we, were, we had been doing it for years before the, we were ever a TV show. Um, so we just kind of kept doing what we were doing, but adapted it to TV. Some of these other shows, uh, you know, they're in it for different reasons. Some of them just want to have experiences. They just want to enjoy the mystery of it. And there's nothing wrong with that. All I ask is that, you know, they don't hurt anybody along the way, be they living or dead. Um, you know, if we all investigate the same exact way, we're not going to get as far. Now, when it comes to, in, you know, angering or provoking entities there's a time to do that um you know when you're dealing with intelligent hauntings they're they're just people and not everyone's nice and so sometimes you got to stand your ground and sometimes you gotta you know you gotta be a little forceful but you have to have the skill to clean that up when you're done or else you're leaving the family or the people who work in that place uh, stranded you know you just stoked the fire and ran away um so it's a little unprofessional. There is a time and a place to do it. But uh, like I said, the goals are very different. Fair enough. That makes sense. So one of the things that, that you started focusing on once you got away from the TV show is uh, you're a pretty accomplished musician. Tell me what kind of uh, what kind of band you've got together and what kind of music you perform. So I've been in bands off and on throughout my life. And uh, we had a band of uh, my my best friends and my wife a few years ago called uh, Carpet Shark, but um, our life kind of got in the way. So that that's no more. Um, but uh, I, I taught myself how to play piano and guitar when I was 14. And, um, you know, I've been playing piano ever since. And I, I have no formal training. I just play by ear. I'm not very good at reading sheet music. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've made two albums to date. Um, you can get them on iTunes or Spotify, anywhere, really. Um, and I'm working on a third and a Christmas album as well. Oh, there you go. And, you know, obviously you're you're an artist, you're a writer, you've done all, you, I mean, you really have 
your hand in a lot of different areas and and that shows definitely the talent that that you have what i'm most intrigued by is your involvement in games because <laughs> this is this is something that uh it just seemed when i when i found this out it was like that was the least that i had expected you know i all the other things understand this one kind of seemed like it was out in left field compared to your other talents so tell me a little bit about the the company that you're you're part of now so that's the problem with being on TV. They, you know, the show shows one side of you and people don't know about all the other ones. And that's the joy of doing the YouTube. People get to see it all, whether they like it or not. <laughs> but anyway, um, so, uh, yeah, I have been uh, tweaking and making board games ever since I was a little kid. Um, you know, I remember when, when I was living in Italy, I had I had a a small surgery on my foot and I couldn't do anything. So all I had was a deck of cards and I invented 12 different ways to play solitaire, just things like that. Um, and I've been drawing ever since I could hold a pencil. Um, my good friend that I've known since I was five, Mike Ritchie had invented a few games and he started to become, uh, an, an accomplished game designer, a uh, board game designer. And, uh, he kind of wanted to branch out on his own. So we, we combined forces you know, my art and game design with his game design and his REI. Um, and we started our company called Rather Dashing Games. And, uh, you know, we've, we've made, what, I think 10 or 11 games to date. And uh, we have no shortage of ideas. Um, we love it. Uh, you know, a lot of people think board games and they think, do people still play that anymore? The board game world is thriving and it's growing rapidly. Um, more than books. And more than, you know, it, it competes with video games. Um, in Europe, it's a huge world. It's a huge, huge industry. And America is right on track for that. A lot of people think Parcheesi and Monopoly. And quite honestly, those games are fine. But they do not hold a candle to the stuff when you dig a little deeper. Amazing art, beautiful stories, ingenious mechanics. And it's a wonderful world. What I like about most about working in the board game world is that there's no real direct competition. I mean, everyone's fighting to succeed, but it's not like I'm I'm selling toothpaste where you're only going to buy one tube of toothpaste. You know what I mean? Someone can come buy my game and then walk to the next table or go to the next website and buy that other game. And so everybody's trying to build the industry together. And so, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. And, and you know, I just love it. And we got more games in the work. We got one called Wakening Lair that's coming out um, – next month that I'm so excited for. It's a game I've always wanted to play since I was about eight. And it's, <laughs> it's wonderful. Yeah. And a lot of fun doing the artwork for it. Yeah, if it don't exist, let's just create it ourselves. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me, let me ask you this then on, on the game situation, how can people keep up with what you got out and where's the best place for them to, to look at what you got available and purchase games? Um, so uh, there's a website called rather and uh, there's also uh, we have a Facebook page and a Twitter account and a YouTube channel. I mean, it's really hard to avoid us if you want to find us. So <laughs> <laughs> we also have a newsletter too that you can subscribe to and get all the info on. Tell me about some uh, some events you got coming up, whether it be Center Stage or uh, with Amy's group, uh, Strange Escapes. Okay, so uh, my next event is um, March 23rd, March 24th, and I just saw the tweet today. There's just a few tickets left. Um, it's at the Rhodes Hotel, which is a very small location, and this is a very intimate event. Um, I'm doing it with Chad Lindbergh. You may know him from um, uh, 
supernatural. Um, he's, he's done some X-Files and stuff. He's an actor and he's a good friend of mine and he's just fantastic. Um, he did uh, Ghost, Ghost Stalkers too. Um, but this is all charity. This is all going to charity. So if you come to the event, you can help Lost Limbs Foundation, which is my charity of choice, um, help them buy prosthetics for growing kids because, you know, kids with no, you know, the very first thing we read is see Jane run and these kids can't do that. And so, you know, we, we got to give them that. And uh, so if you come to the event, you'll help make that happen. Um, after that, I will be in Salem at Salem Con with um, Nick Groff and, and uh, John Zaffis and, and a bunch of crazy people. Um, and that's in April. And then I've got Michigan Paracon and a bunch. Uh, anyone can just go to my Facebook page and click the events tab and you can see everywhere I'm going to be. That's phenomenal. And, and yeah, the charity, the, the Lost Limbs, that's a, that's an awesome charity. Anything to do with children tugs at our heartstrings. Now we're, we're big fans of anything like St. Jude. And when I'm doing comedy, I actually did enough to enough charity events to put together two wishes for Make-A-Wish Foundation. So wow. yeah, we're all about charity here at this podcast and we, we appreciate anybody that's the same way. And Chad, you're, you're right. We actually had Chad on the show a couple of weeks ago. So oh, he's great, right? He's a big kid. Oh yeah. It's <laughs> probably, probably, the, probably the most fun interview we've done. Cause all we did was just basically rag on each other the whole time. So that was, <laughs> it's, it's like we'd known each other for years and it was the first time meeting. So I, I appreciate you coming on Grant. This is, uh, like I said, this is a big thrill for me. You've been the guy, as far as I was concerned, in uh, in any of this paranormal investigative world. And, you know, I appreciate you taking the time. And it's been a big deal to me. And it might not have seemed like it, but the way I carried the conversation. But I've been starstruck the whole time we've been talking. So thank you so much. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Let's do it again. And, and um, you know, get in touch with Lindsay. Let's do it again. And, um, you know, let's get, let's get deep. I don't know how much deeper we can get. I just... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot to the paranormal man that's a, it's almost a bottomless pit yeah i know it man it's uh you know you said something about like the board game not really being competition out there and and but it's the same way with the podcast world and you know we all try to help each other out and we try to just grow the field because it's like you said with the board games you don't just because you listen to one show doesn't mean you don't have room to listen to 20 other shows you know so we we, we try to all help each other out so that's a, that's what went through my mind when you were talking about the the board game situation and I wish you best of, best of luck in in all of these endeavors. Like I said, let's let's get the board games back on the map. We'll help any way we can. I appreciate that, man. All right, thank you, sir. And uh, give our fans out there a, a big uh, yeehaw, Grant. Uh, yeehaw! <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care, Mr. Grant Wilson. Everybody, fun interview. He's a very fun guy, and like I said, he definitely never disappoints. And we're going to get him back on the show again and talk about some more detailed paranormal stuff. Well, I can't wait for that. We'd like to thank him for taking the time out of his busy schedule, um, you know, to be on our show. That's just very, uh, very nice thing that he did for us. Absolutely. Make sure if you need your Hillbilly Horror Stories merchandise, go to our website and then uh, all kinds of the new shirts, new mugs. We've had a bunch of new orders there recently, so we thank everybody for... Oh, gosh. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, that's, you guys are awesome. And also, if you want to be a Patreon supporter, we've got the new episode coming out Thursday for the uh, Listener Stories episode. If you have a listener story, we are recording those Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of this week. So if you've got a listener story then you want to get on there, send me a message. 
on our Facebook group or our Facebook page, and we'll get you on the air. Sounds great. We'll see you guys next week. Have a great week, guys.